Hi Sunil, welcome to Network Capital. Thrilled to host you. Your book has made a deep impact on uh, me and on the Network Capital community largely. People come to us to become more backable students, young professionals. So these the seven prong framework really helped us. Thanks so much for joining us, Sunil. Utkarsh, thanks so much for having me. It's it's really it's really uh, delightful to be here. I'm a big fan of what you do and the content you create. So thank you for including me. It's our pleasure. Let's let's start from the beginning, Sunil. Um, you talk, you of course, like you've written extensively about the story or the journey towards your entrepreneurial ventures and so forth. But talk to me about the early days. Were you a good student? What was a day in the life in the Gupta household like? Aha. Uh -huh. Well, you know, I was not I was not a particularly good student. Um, but uh, the day in the life of the Gupta household was, I think, very much about. Um, work. It was about hard work. And I think that that was something that was instilled in us in a, in a, in a pretty early age. And, you know, I, I think the, the idea of hard work, but also I think focus, finding sort of times of focus when yeah, it is that you concentrate the best. I think my parents were both, both my father and mother were both, I think really, I think honed in on this idea that you have times in your day when you are at your best. And you should figure out what those times are and really start to focus during those times. You know, so work when you're working, be doing nothing other than working. And when you're when you're playing and you're you're with your friends, do nothing other than that. And that was really instilled, I think, both in my brother Sanjay and me at a pretty early age. So you were learning about deep work as a child. No wonder. <laughs> yeah, we didn't call it that. We didn't call it that back then, but yeah, absolutely. And then, like, uh, you went or you studied in Detroit and then went on to Kellogg. Uh, what was the thought process there? How did, what was college like? And why did you decide to do the joint JD MBA? Yeah, you know, if you look at my career, it's kind of been a, a, a back and forth between technology and politics. You know, I have spent in technology, spending time inside big companies like um, Accenture and Sony. And I, and I worked out in India for Tata. Um, and then, you know, went off and started my own companies. Yeah, became part of startups and then started my own healthcare company, a company called Rise. Before that, I was at Mozilla and Groupon. But I've always sort of been interested in politics. And that's kind of what, what I think led me to law school. I, I, I worked uh, for a brief amount of time in the Clinton White House. And I worked uh, for the Democratic National Committee. And, uh, you know, I think that there's, there's sort of one story that kind of pulls it all together for me. It was in 2004. And I was working as a writer at that time backstage at the Democratic National Convention. This was in Boston. And, uh, you know, at the Democratic National Convention, conventions are held every four years. And so, you know, you have all of sort of the headliner names uh, from the party that are speaking. But there was one face backstage that I really didn't recognize. And that was a state senator from Illinois named Barack Obama. And Barack Obama goes up there and he gives his speech. And of course, just, I mean, that, that, that ends up being the speech, I think, that changes his career, but also changes, I think, the trajectory of, of American politics. And that night I became, you know, I'm, I was watching the whole speech backstage, and I think I became one of, one of millions of, of young people that night that just became enamored and, and I think, um, interested in, in his story. And so I started to dig deeper. And what I realized is that, you know, the, the four years prior to that speech, 
unfolded in a very mysterious, interesting way. Um, you know, in the year 2000, Barack Obama was uh, a candidate for Congress, uh, and he lost. He lost that election, and he lost by a large margin, by a two-to-one margin. Um, but the, the thing that was more fascinating to me than that, Vikarsh, and I think really in, in a lot of ways shapes my outlook on life and career, is that, you know, people described him during that campaign as boring. You know, there was a yep. reporter named Ted Yeah, there was a reporter named Ted McClelland who shadowed him around, and he said that Barack Obama is so dry that he sucks the air out of the room. And then four years later, he's known as this bastion of hope and, and inspiration. And, and what I realized is that it is possible for us to really reinvent ourselves. You know, you, you look at people that you admire today, it is very likely that if you rewind the clock and you look at the version one of them, it's going to be a very different version. And I think that we don't talk about that enough because if we start to believe that, truly believe that then what it means is that we can adapt and change ourselves along the way to be the people that we actually want to be. And fundamentally, that's what this book, Backable, is all about. It's what I teach today at school. And, you know, it's, it's what I'm passionate about. When I look at your career, there's law, there's product management, there's politics, there's entrepreneurship. And now you're making people backable through, I think, coaching, teaching at the Harvard Medical School. And also, I, I believe you invest uh, in, in high growth companies. So you've really sort of uh, had multiple careers and you've reinvented yourself multiple times. But what jumped out at me is that it hasn't been so easy, has it? Like from, from law school, looking for product management jobs, what was like, walk us through some of your transitions. And when you look back, what do you think made you a little more backable with every step? And then we'll of course talk to talk about the missteps and failures, but let's talk about first stuff that worked? Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question. I think transitions are, transitions are always hard, but I think that the way that I sort of always looked at it is that, you know, we tend to sort of look at our career as nouns. You know, I, I'm a writer, I'm a director, I am a uh, product manager, you know, that, that's, that tends to be how we sort of present ourselves to the word world is, is through these nouns. But I, I've always sort of, you know, been given the advice to really pay attention to the verb instead of the noun. So I write, I create, I draw, I, you know, I tell stories to really focus on that verb. And when, when we start to get down to the verb level, what we realize is it, it kind of really opens us up to do things that are different than we may have otherwise imagined. Because as soon as we are at the noun level, you know, that can actually be, it can be pretty limiting. We, we may say, look, because I'm, 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 I'm involved right now as a, as a chief technology officer or, or I am a CEO, that might give us the impression that we, we need to remain at that noun for the rest of our lives. But if instead it's, I really like to manage teams. I really like to lead teams. I really like to work with interesting people. It starts to free us up. And that's the way that I've looked at my career. And I think that you know if you look at sort of the way that I, 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 I sort of presented myself to others, it's very much at that sort of verb level. So you were asking about the transition from law school into product management. You know, ultimately what we did is we talked about in that interview, I still remember it was with John Lilly, the CEO of Mozilla. A lot of what we talked about was stories. You know, what are the stories of, of people that, you know, who, who need help right now? Yeah, what are the stories of the types of customers that they want to serve? I was really interested in those stories. I was interested in those when I was in law school. I was interested in those when I was working as a political speechwriter. And so we talked about stories. And yeah, I mean, I think that that, that ultimately, when you, when you can get down to that verb level, 
it can make you um, able, I think, to transition. And I think it can make you more backable too. That's such a deep insight because often we attach our identity to I am X instead of what we do. Yeah. And I've always found that even uh, on, on Network Capital, one of our most popular fellowships is I don't know what I want to do with my life fellowship. There we talk about micro experiments and it often comes down to the noun versus verb. So yeah. thanks so much for pointing it out. Sunil, now let's come to the missteps because, uh, you know, at one point, unintentionally, you became the poster child for failure. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I think that could not have been easy, right? Because at yeah. one level, your CV looks amazing. It looks distinguished, but there's also the backstory there. So tell us about how that happened. Yeah, I, you know, I think it may have been Bill Gates who said that success is a lousy teacher. And I think that's true. I, I really do now. You know, I think that if you look at sort of uh, what's in column A and column B, success and failure, I certainly look at the failure column as that is where I learned. That is where I grew. Um, and, you know, a few years ago, this really became apparent for me because I received a phone call from the organizers of the conference called FailCon, which stands for Failure Conference. And, you know, it's, gosh, it's, it's a humbling experience when somebody calls you and says, hey, we're organizing a conference on failure and we'd love for you to be the keynote speaker. That and could not have happened, yeah. I decided to do it, and uh, and I didn't know this at the time, but there in the, in the audience while I'm up on stage is a reporter from the New York Times. And uh, fast forward to me sitting in my apartment at that time, I was living in San Francisco, and there was a full-length article on failure, and my face is the cover of this article. And it turns out that this article goes viral, and so uh, if you, literally at the time, if you would have Googled failure, my face would have been the cover. My face would have been one of your first search results. And so, um, you know, I, I, think, I think that for me, it, it made me realize something that I had sort of spent all of this time really trying to craft this image of success. And the thought that I had at that moment was like, no matter what, no matter in the future, years from now, people are going to be, if people Google my name, that's going to be one of the first things they see is going to be this article on failure outlining all these mishaps, the companies that I tried to start that went nowhere. It, it, may, it, may, it may, even though this happened after, talk about the fact that I ran for public office and lost. It's going to be about failure. But a friend of mine gave me a piece of advice around that time that um, I really took to heart, which was he, he brought up the Buddha. And he said that, you know, Buddha said that when you, when you feel pain for anything in your life, in your career, for anything, it's really two arrows that are shot. And the first arrow is the arrow that sort of punctures your skin. And you can't really do anything about that arrow. But the second arrow is where you ascribe meaning to that pain. What do you actually do with it? And what I decided to do with it is I decided to take this article and proactively start emailing it out to all these people that I admired. Yeah, people that, people, who, people who I didn't think would meet with me, but I said to them in the email, hey, as you can see, I don't know what I'm doing. See this link below. Would you be willing to, to grab some time? Grab some coffee, grab, grab a phone call. The response rate to that email was incredibly high, and that really paved the conversations to the book that that, that I wrote. Yeah, and the book is obviously a, a masterpiece. But which year was this? I think I want the readers to get a sense of the timeline. Yeah, yeah. So the, the article came out in 2014. Okay, got it. So this article came out. Um, you know, Sunil, in the book, you talk about I think 
immigrants and refugees at one point, which I thought was so moving. And you talked about, I'm not going to reveal it because people should read the book for it, but I, I, I love the way you describe it. Do you think your image of success or, you know, I will prove and become something has something to do with the immigrant mindset or were you nudged or pushed in any way at any time? Where did this pressure to excel come from? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, the, 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 the root story of the book is, is, is about a woman named Demyanti Hingarani. And Demyanti Hingarani was a refugee on the border of Pakistan and India. She grew up with no running water, no electricity, spent a lot of her childhood in a refugee camp and um, you know, eating rations. And, but she did something really remarkable. She, she taught herself how to read. And the first book that she read from cover to cover was the biography of Henry Ford. And after reading that biography, she decided that one day she wanted to become an engineer with Ford Motor Company, and which was kind of an impossible sort of, or if not improbable, dream for somebody in those circumstances to have at that time. This was the 1950s. But her parents really got behind the vision, and they got her on a ship to the United States, saved every penny they had, every rupee they had. She ends up getting a scholarship to Oklahoma State University, and the day after she graduates, she gets in a car and she drives to Detroit, Michigan to apply for her dream job. And uh, she manages to find her way into an interview with a hiring manager. But when the hiring manager looks at her resume and he looks at her application, he says, wait a second, are you applying for the job of an engineer? And she says, yeah. And he says, well, I'm sorry. You know, actually, we don't have any female engineers working here right now. Because see, Ford Motor Co Company at that time was in its heyday, doing very, very well. It had thousands upon thousands of engineers working on staff, but not a single one of them was a woman. And so Demyanti Hingarani, in this moment, she's really deflated. She picks up her resume, picks up her purse, and begins to walk out of the room. But almost in this last-ditch moment, she summons up all the courage that she can find, and she looks at this guy, and she tells him her story. And she tells him about all the struggle that it took for her to get to this country, to get to Detroit, to get to this very room. And then she says to him, look, things are changing. And if you don't have any female engineers on staff, then do yourself a favor and hire me now. And it was in this moment that this middle manager from suburban Michigan decides to take a, a bet, to take a chance on a refugee from the other side of the world. And Demyanti Hingarani becomes Ford, Ford Motor Company's first female engineer. And, and the reason that I love that story, getting back to your question, Karsh, is because it is the immigrant story. It gave hope to women in the workforce, to immigrants that were hoping for a better day. And it also gave hope to me because Demyanti Hingarani is my mom. And if it weren't for this middle manager from, suburb, from suburban Michigan, had he not taken a chance from an immigrant from the other side of the world, then I wouldn't be here to tell you this story. Yeah. It's, uh, it must be quite a delight and such a, like uh, an honor to share you know, the household with such an inspiring person, uh, which is why I asked you, what was the Gupta household like? Um, what was the impact of your mom and your dad and your brother on the way you think and the way you are today and your wife? Because, uh, you know, you call her your coach as well, right? You guys yeah. discuss this a lot together. Yeah. I think that, you know, there was always a sense, I think, because of, I think mom and dad's story, uh, immigrant story, th there was always a sense of impermanence and possibility, you know? And so this, this, this unique combination of 
you know, nothing, you can't take anything for granted, but at the same time, anything is possible. And, and, I, and I think that that, that, that that was a very unique, I think, mix that both Sanjay and I were brought up in, which I think in a lot of ways, you know, is one of the reasons that we, 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 we've kind of, I think, weaved careers that are, are a little bit sort of, uh, in some ways, pretzel twisted, disjointed, um, but have sort of, you know, been the path that I think that we, you know, have, have found most interesting. I mean, if you look at Sanjay, for example, practicing surgeon in Michigan, decides that one day he wants to be on television and decides to go down that path, but he sort of weaves them together and he becomes CNN's first chief medical correspondent. For me, you were asking before, how does a lawyer become a product manager? Well, you know, there's a, I'm, I'm in law school and I'm, and I'm starting to discover these stories and, and I'm, I'm realizing that they're, you know, the, they're not just relevant to what's happening inside the courtroom, but they're happening everywhere. And so technology is a great way to scale that. And that really kind of led me down that path. And so I think this mix of impermanence and possibility, I think really truly defines the immigrant story. Yeah, and makes you more backable if you transform failure into you know, perhaps become more backable. Let's, uh, let's try and define backable for our prospective readers of your book and the listeners of this episode. What, uh, what does backable mean? And uh, how did you come up with this term? Talk to me about the origins of this book. Yeah, sure. You know, I was starting to hear the term backable uh, when I got to Silicon Valley, um, but I wasn't really, I wasn't hearing it really outside of there, you know, and, and, and you know, backable, I was, I was hearing that, you know, certain people were backable. And, and what I, what I started to realize is that backable people are, are people who are able to get into a room and they're really able to sort of rally us to get behind them. And the trick of it is that oftentimes they do that when they don't necessarily have the obvious idea or they're not the obvious candidate for a job, we still feel inspired to want to take a bet on them, to want to take a chance on them. And that can be really, really important, especially when we're talking about startups and technology and we're talking about really anything new. Uh, yeah, everything. I think, that, I think that we're always constantly, no matter, no matter whether it be with our career or with our community or with our, you know, with, with our companies, we, we, are, we are constantly trying to get people to rally around our ideas. Those could be colleagues, those could be partners, those could be clients, they could even be friends and family. And, and you know, again, the trick of it though is that when we're coming up with something new, oftentimes we're not able to say, well, here's why I know this is the right idea. Here's all the evidence, here's all the data. We often don't have that in hand. If we did, then it probably wouldn't be a new idea. So the question is, how do you get people to take that leap of faith? where they say, you know, we don't know if this thing is obvious. We don't know if this thing is going to work, but we're going to go along for the ride anyway, because we believe in you. Right. And uh, this definition like led to the book. Uh, you mentioned that uh, when you decided to uh, write it, you gave somebody a call. Who was that somebody and why did you call that person? Well, one of the people that I called when I, when I first thought about writing this book was a guy named Evan Eschemeyer. And Evan is a friend from law school, and uh, he's a former uh, professional basketball player. And we, we, got, we got to be really close in, in, in school. And part of the, re you know, in, in the book, I talk about sort of the, the, the types of people you want to surround yourself with, your backable circle. And Evan is one of the people in my backable circle. But there are four, four types of personalities that are in your backable circle. And I call these the four Cs. The first C is your collaborator. Your collaborator, and this is this is someone who's constantly building on top of your ideas. So when you're with this person, they're using language like "yes and." They're they're when you're with them, you almost feel like you're in a, a musical jam session together. So that's your collaborator. 
your coach is, is, is different than your collaborator because your coach, while your collaborator is thinking about wh whether your idea is good for the market or whether it's good for the organization, your coach is really thinking about, is this idea good for you? Like, does, is this something you, Utkarsh, would want to work on for the next three to five years? And because I know you so intimately well, I'm, I'm going to be able to say, look, this could be a great idea, but it's a really a great idea for someone else. It yes. doesn't really fit you, right? And that's really, really important because there are plenty of great ideas out there that are great for someone else and not necessarily yep. you. Your third is your cheerleader, your cheerleader. And your cheerleader is the person who's always going to give you that last bit of juice before you walk into the room. And it may sound a little sappy, but we all need that. We all need someone we can call right before we walk into a big moment. And they're going to just give us that last bit of energy. So right. that's your cheerleader. You know, one of the people that I interviewed for the book, studied for the book is Ellen Levy, who Fast Company Magazine named the most connected woman in Silicon Valley. And, you know, when I asked her, I mean, she's got members of Rolodex, she's got members of, of Congress in her Rolodex, she's got you know, Fortune 500 CEOs in her Rolodex. And when I asked her, who do you call before you walk into a big moment? She said, that's easy. I call my mom. So that's your cheerleader. And then your, your last one is your critic, your critic. And your critic is, 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 the, is the person who's always going to be poking holes in your ideas. I like to call this person your cheddar. And, and the reason I call this person your cheddar is because if you've ever seen the movie Eight Mile with Eminem. Yeah, yeah you're from Detroit, so. <laughs> yeah, and I'm from Detroit. Eminem, Eminem's surrounded by this circle of friends, and they're constantly sort of building up his ideas. But there's one friend named Cheddar who's constantly poking holes in his ideas. And so we find out throughout the movie, though, that it's really Cheddar that gets Eminem ready for the stage. And we have a tendency in our lives to sort of push the Cheddar in our lives away, right? Just because that person can be kind of annoying. But if you find someone who has your best interest at heart, but at the same time isn't afraid to point out your blind spots, that person can really help you get ready for a room. So what we find is that backable people tend to really embrace their Cheddar. Now, you were asking me who I called before I wrote this book. I called Evan Eschemeyer because he's my collaborator. You know, I called him and said, look, I got an idea for this book. Here's what it is. And immediately, we felt like we were in this musical jam session together. Immediately, he was building on top of the idea. So I'm saying, yeah, that was, that's really cool. What if also you did this? You know, for example, I was, I was originally thinking about this book as a technology book, right? It was technology, <laughs> entrepreneurship. And what Evan Eschemeyer said to me is, look, this could, this could be for everything. Yeah, I work, he, he works as a general manager right now. And he, you know, he, he works in the sort of outdoor life space. You know, he, he sells uh, fishing gear and he works with, with fishermen and sportsmen and hunters. And he said, like, this can be relevant to people like that too. And so he really, he really convinced me to expand kind of my purview and he was right. And so that's what a good collaborator can do. Yeah. Who is your channel, Sunil? Yeah. Well, you know, I've got a, I've got a couple of them in my life. I've got a couple of really, really close friends who, um, you know, one, I, I've been, one, one named Alex, who I've been friends with since, since uh, law school. And, uh, you know, I call him and I know he's going to, I know for sure, no matter what the idea is, he's going to say, okay, but what about this? And what about that? And have you thought about this? Like he's going to, he's going to be the person who's going to poke holes in my idea. And, that's good because I know he's coming from a really, really good place. I know he wants me to succeed, but again, he's not afraid to show me where I show me the points that I might be missing. Now, again, that's super valuable for me because I called Alex before I went and met with publishers. And had I not done that, 
then I wouldn't have been prepared for the questions that inevitably came up inside the room because Alex pointed those out first. Now, it, it doesn't mean, by the way, with Carson, that I need to have perfect answers to those questions. Right. And oftentimes when it comes to a new idea or something that's unproven, you're not going to have bulletproof answers to those questions. But just the fact that you understand that those questions are coming, just the fact that you won't get caught flat-footed and that you've thought through the angles before you walk into the room makes you infinitely more backable. Um, when, you, when you were raising, building companies, raising money for, um, for your ventures, you talk about the various mistakes that you made uh, in the pitching process and why uh, you, were, you were being passed over despite your illustrious background. Um, what do you think was the reason when you reflect on those moments now uh, what is like one thing that jumps out yeah, at you, the you know, mistake that you were doing? Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it makes me think of a, of a time that I, that I pitched Tim Ferriss on my company, Rise. And, and Rise, what we did is we did one-on-one -on -one nutrition coaching right over your mobile phone. So, you know, telemedicine has taken off over the past few years, particularly during the pandemic. But in 2012, 2013, it was still a relatively new concept. Um, and what we did is we, we sort of made it possible for you to take photos of what you were eating and be coached along the way by a nutritionist. And the, the, you know, the way that I presented this idea to people like Tim Ferriss was I talked about the market. Right? I talked about how big the market really was, the rising rates of hypertension and diabetes and obesity, and how many people were trying to lose weight. And then, you know, and then talked about my product. Um, and at the very end of that pitch, I would tell a story. And the story that I would tell uh, was the one about my father. And my father, when he was in his 40s, had an emergency bypass surgery. He was rushed to the operating room. They operated on him. I was about nine years old. And so when I got out of school, I found out what had happened. And we went to go see him in the hospital. And it almost seemed like he had aged you know, 20 years overnight. And what I remember is we, we, were, we were leaving the hospital. And I was in the backseat of the car. And they had handed us a bunch of paperwork. And on that paperwork were, were, you know, basically how to live at home. What do you do now that you're home, you're out of the hospital? And it had things on, the, on, the, on these pieces of paper, had things like eat broccoli, eat Brussels sprouts. You know, we were an Indian family. We didn't, we didn't eat broccoli. We didn't eat Brussels sprouts at home. And I remember thinking to myself, like, this is just not going to stick. This is not going to work for our family. We eat chicken tikka masala. We eat, we, we eat different types of things, right? And so, and it didn't, it really didn't work in the beginning. You know, my dad kind of slipped back into some of the, the past behavior that he had, but luckily for us, a, a insurance kicked in and paid for the cost of a nutritionist to help us really kind of customize our lifestyle into something that was going to stick, something that was really going to work. And I believe like knock on wood that my father is alive today because of that nutritionist decades ago that worked with us. Um, so I told this story and I, remember, I still remember Tim Ferriss looked at me and he said, why did you say that story to the very end? Why not tell that story up front? And then you can talk about the numbers. Then you can talk about the facts and figures and you can talk about your product, but tell that story first. And the point that he was trying to make is that, you know, when we pitch someone on a new idea, we need stories and substance, right? We need both. You can't, it's not one or the other. You need both, but stories are what really hook us in and substance is what keeps us there. And the story that Tim told me was that when he was writing his first book, The 4-Hour Workweek, 
he was turned down by 25 publishers in a row. But a friend gave him a piece of advice. And the piece of advice is, hey, it looks like you're trying to write a book for a mass market. You're trying to, you're trying to write a book for millions of people. Why not instead try to write this book for just one friend? Bring one friend to mind and write this book for him or her and see what happens, right? And so he does. And when he did that, it sharpened his writing. It sharpened his focus so much that when he shared it with publishers, they ate it up. The book ended up selling tens of millions of copies. It spent tens of weeks, or I think years now, as a New York Times bestseller. I mean, it just it did it did very very well. But it was all targeted towards that one friend. And so that gets to the idea in the book that I call casting a central character, really finding that one person that you are trying to serve and keeping that one person in mind. Now it doesn't mean that you can't have a product that ultimately is gonna serve tens of millions of people, you can. It doesn't mean that you can't ultimately create a multi-billion dollar product, you can. But always keeping that one central character in mind from beginning to end, I think is what creates compelling pitches, it's what creates compelling careers and compelling companies. Yes. Um, why did you put the story at the last? What was the thought process when you were creating that first pitch? Which, I just yeah. didn't think it was that important. You know, I, I, I very much focused on the substance. I, 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 you know, I, I, went to, I went to law school. I, before that, I worked in, you know, tech and programming. And, you know, I, I, I sort of focused on here are the numbers. That's what I thought people wanted to see, especially when I felt like I was dealing with Silicon Valley type investors was they were going to want to see the numbers. And that's, that's, that's still true. They do. But, you know, numbers don't necessarily make something stick. One of the things to keep in mind is when you're talking to investors, you're talking to people, just generally talking to any type of gatekeeper, any type of decision maker, chances are they're hearing lots and lots of new information every day. They're, they're hearing lots of new ideas every day. You have to be the one that on their drive home or on their commute home or when they're back, at, back home at night and they're sort of reflecting on their day, you want to be that one that sticks. And that's probably not going to happen through numbers alone. It's typically going to happen because there's a story. Again, stories are what attract us. They're, they're what bring us in. And then you, you still need to have the substance to keep them there. Yeah. Uh, Sunil, what is the IKEA effect? And uh, how have you benefited or been hurt by it? Yeah. You know, one of my favorite stories in the book was the story of Betty Crocker in the 1940s. And Betty Crocker had introduced instant cake mix for the very first time. And they, they believed this was going to be a huge, huge best-selling product because all you had to do was pour water into a mix and then pop it in the oven. And then voila, you get this really tasty cake, right? Who wouldn't want that was what the executives thought. And so they were really surprised when they found out that no one was buying these instant cake mixes. It was not, it was not selling very well at all. And they could not figure out why. And so they hire a psychologist, this guy named Ernest Dykdom, to go out into the field and start interviewing customers. And what Dykta comes back with is really fascinating. He looks at the executives and he says, I think that you have made the process of making a cake too easy, too simple. Because you kind of remove the customer from the creative process. If all they have to do is pour water into a mix, then they don't really feel like they were part of the creative process. So his, so his recommendation is, why don't you remove one key ingredient and see what happens? And so they do. They remove the egg. So now as a customer, you have, to, you have to buy and you have to crack and you have to mix in your own fresh egg into the mix and sales completely take off. Because now customers really feel like when the cake comes out of the oven, 
It's their cake. They, they really made that cake. And researchers have unpacked this idea over and over again. You asked about the IKEA effect, which the IKEA effect basically tells us that we place up to five times the amount of value on something that we help build, something that we simply buy off the shelf because we made it ourselves. So just like what happened with Betty Crocker, when you involve people, when you involve people in the process, you make them feel like builders, you make them feel like owners. By the time it reaches execution phase, you're reaching there together. And that really gets to the, I think, the heart of creativity, which is that we, we've kind of been told that it's a two-step formula, right? You come up with a great idea and you execute on it really well. But there's this hidden step in between. And this hidden step is where you bring in early people. You bring in early employees. You bring in early colleagues. You bring in early partners, early investors. And you, you make them feel like they're the pro part of the process. You let them crack their own egg into the mix so that by the time you reach the end, they feel like it's their idea too. And I believe, Utkarsh, you can trace literally every successful organization, every successful product initiative, every successful political movement back to this hidden step. It was never, it was never just one person who came up with an idea. It was a collection of people who felt like it was their idea as well. And the difference between um, your early pitches and the pitches that you made towards the of, you know, uh, perhaps after a few years was that you transformed that into from your idea to our idea, right? Even with investors. And yeah. that worked out really well, I think. You got yeah. like Google to invest in a wide range of other top companies. Yeah. And, and you know, I think, I think you know, what, one way to think about it is that when we walk into a room, we're, we're, we're often tempted to tell the story of me, right? The, the story of my idea, the story of my resume, the story of my vision. And what I learned what I learned how to do is, is to change from the story of me to the story of us. How does my story and your story come together to tell our story? And part of that means not going into a room and having every single detail of your concept buttoned up or not sharing all of that up front. You can think through every single angle and you should think through every single angle, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to share every single angle. Another way to think about it is you don't need to share how it has to be. You can share what it could be. Yeah. And the way that we do that is we, we, we talk about our vision. We talk about some of the possibilities and then we open it up for discussion. Now, again, like when I, when I talk about this, this is very important. That doesn't necessarily mean that just because you share 20% upfront, you're only 20% prepared. You're hundred percent prepared, but you can still share 20% upfront and then let the other possibilities come up inside the room by asking them, what do they think? Right and really involving them in the discussions. You know, there was a there was a story in the book that, that I really love about a designer who worked at places like Microsoft and Google. He's a really top-notch designer, and what he realized is that when he was walking into the room with these with these high fidelity designs, he would very rarely get what he needed out of those meetings. You know, people people typically were very cold to the ideas that he was presenting. And one day he he describes this experience where he he forgot his laptop. And he walks into a room and there, there are people there and he doesn't quite know what to do. So I mean, he doesn't have anything to project. So instead he walks to the whiteboard and he literally just starts drawing out his designs, just starts drawing mm -hmm. them on a whiteboard, right? Not high fidelity, but just black and white with a marker. And what he realizes is that the people in the room start to activate. They start to engage in a way that they had never really engaged before. Some people are up out of their seats. They're drawing alongside him. People are asking questions that they had never asked before. And it becomes this highly collaborative activity. And he realizes that he had spent all these years 
creating these high fidelity designs when what he really needed to be doing was walking into a room and sharing a high level vision of what it is, at least in the beginning, so that people could participate and be part of the process as well. Again, they could crack their own egg into the mix so that they could be part of the cake. Among the many things that you do, you're also a teacher, right? At the medical school at Harvard. Uh, in the online world, in this Zoom uh, world, do you have any advice on how you can make people co-creators like, like this designer from Microsoft and Google did? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think in some ways, Karch, I think it's actually easier, you know, because, and, and part of the reason for that is because when we are in same room settings, you know, it tends to be that the loudest people in the room tend to drown out everybody else. Right. But, but we know that the loudest voices in the room aren't necessarily the smartest voices. In the room. They're not necessarily the most creative voices in the room. And so I think one benefit of, I think, us being remote right now, which I think we should really, you know, consider keeping and finding a way to, to stick with, mm-hmm. even as we pull out of the pandemic is, is that, you know, how do we make, how do we make it possible for everybody's voice to count? And, you know, one of the ways that, that I think about that, and I've seen companies now think about that is to change brainstorming to brainwriting, right. where instead of everybody sort of shouting their voice into sort of this, this pit, we sort of say, Hey, here's the problem that we're looking to solve. Would you take just, you know, a day and, and write out some creative thoughts, and then let's put them together in this collective document. It could be a Google Doc, but don't put your name on it, right? Let's all put our ideas in here, but don't put your name on it. And let's go in and let's, let's, let's thumbs up or thumbs down or do whatever we need to do with these ideas. But now we have no idea who put it in. We're not trying to kiss up to anybody. We're not trying to, we're not trying to play politics. We're shining the, the, the spotlight on the idea itself. And I think that's a really healthy practice. And so, you know, it's interesting because I, I wrote this book, which is all about how do you get people to take a chance on you? And there are techniques that I offer in the book. But I think as leaders, one of the things that we need to do is actually to take some of these variables out of the equation. We actually need to be shining the spotlight on the idea itself and removing sort of the salesmanship from the process. Because I think if we can do that, we're going to end up, you know, creating, I think, I think first of all, I think people are going to be, feel more creative. They're going to they're going to feel more connected to the companies that they work with. They're going to feel more connected to the work that they're doing. And I think as I think I think as society, we're going to end up bubbling up ideas that may never may not have otherwise, you know, made it made it visible. Uh, Sunil, are you an introvert or an extrovert? You know, I'm an introvert. Okay. now, um, do you think that this new normal that we're seeing will finally make the uh, field a little more even between the advantages that extroverts get in certain settings and the disadvantages that introverts have? Would you think that this new normal will sort of reset it? I, I, think, it, I think it has the potential to. And, and what, you know, what's interesting is that we're all trying to figure out what this new normal looks like now, right? And part of that is, it, I think one thing that I think everybody is realizing is that it's not the obviousness of what's going to go back to the way that things were before. Because again, there are things that we learned along the way here, right? We, 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 we ascribe meaning to that second arrow that was shot. We couldn't do anything about that first arrow that punctured our skin and hurt us. But that second arrow, we can ascribe meaning to that. And part of that is finding out what, what did we learn uh, over this past year and a half to two years that we may actually we may actually want to grow with. We we may actually want to continue to be with. And I think part of that is finding these finding these methods where we're bringing voices out that otherwise weren't heard. You know, I'll I'll tell you I'll tell you a story that really touched me, which was the story of a guy named Bob Ebeling. And if you haven't heard that name before, Bob Ebeling was an engineer 
on the Space Shuttle Challenger mission. He was part of NASA. And, you know, Ebeling, the thing that made his story fascinating is the night before the, the Challenger went up to space or, or, or was, was launched, Ebeling crunched the data, crunched the numbers, and he, and he noticed that something was wrong, something was off. And so he called a meeting with all of his colleagues and he said, look, when I look at these numbers, I, I see something wrong here. And I, I think we should call this mission off or at least delay it. Because if we send the shuttle up tomorrow, I think something bad is going to happen. And Ebeling was very much an introvert type. He was very quiet, very shy, and he was dismissed. And the next morning, the Challenger went up and disintegrated after 90 seconds, killing every astronaut on board. And for the rest of his life, Bob Ebeling blamed himself. And what he said is God should have chosen a different person for that job because I had all the numbers, I had all the data, but I couldn't convince the people inside the room. And so I think the thing for us as leaders is to realize, again, that the loudest voices in the room aren't necessarily the smartest voices in the room. And there are great ideas and worthwhile thoughts that may not be being shared actively because people are afraid to sort of speak up or, or try to speak out. And so we need to find ways now to uncover the things that haven't been shared. Yeah. And I think your book offers seven mental models for people like him to perhaps apply in day-to-day -day situations. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that jumped out at me was inevitability. Hmm. So I, I like Elizabeth Gilbert's writing quite a bit. And she told me once that the surprise plus inevitability is equal to great writing. But here in Backable, you make a different case for inevitability. Hmm. Can you tell us a bit about that and how might entrepreneurs and young professionals sort of use that mental model? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, I think it's um, you know, it fits with what, what Elizabeth said as well. You know, and that for me, the thing that I realize is that when we when we have a new idea, what we what we what we are tempted to do in most cases is walk in a room and tell people how new and exciting it is, right? And what I realize is that you know, as decision makers, we tend to not like things that are new. Just generally, new can be associated with risk, right? change can be associated with risk. And generally as human beings, we are not risk takers. In fact, you know, Daniel Kahneman sort of showed us through his Nobel Prize winning theory that you know, the, the pain that we get from making a bad decision is twice as powerful as the pleasure that we get from making the right decision. Yeah, so loss aversion. Yeah. Loss aversion, right. So generally we, we, don't, we don't like to take risk. What that means practically is you can't necessarily convince people by walking into the room and talking about why something is positive, right? Just pointing out the positive. You have to neutralize the negative as well. And one of the ways that we neutralize the negative is by talking about not just why an idea is new, but why it is inevitable, why this is inevitably going to happen. In other words, the risk of, the risk of inaction is greater than the risk of action, because if you don't act, you're actually going to be left behind. And the way that we do that is really by taking off our advocacy hat. And we just really put on what I call our anthropologist hat. Like we just talk about what is the world going to look like in three to five years, independent of my idea. This is the way things are headed, right? This is the direction. And here now is how my idea fits into that, into that world. So it, it's interesting. It's a, it's kind of a, it's a reframe a little bit because, you know, as, as, as people who are creative or consider themselves to be innovative, oftentimes we are tempted to want to talk about how we are going to change the world. 
But when we look at backable people and the way they operate, typically the way they, they talk about it is how the world is actually already changing. And then how does my idea fit into that change? How you connected with FOMO? We hosted uh, Patrick, uh, yeah. you know, on, on Network Capital. And he, of That's course, right. like he explained how FOMO came into being. But I think there's some sort of connect here as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I was on, I was on Patrick and I are friends. I was on his show as well. And, you know, it, it very, very much so. I mean, again, how, how, how can we show that the risk of inaction is greater than the risk of action? Right. And we need both, by the way. It's not that we just want to simply double down on FOMO. I think we also want to talk about when something is new and exciting. You don't simply want people to be running away from something. You want them to be running towards something as well. But you need both. You need both. And, and again, I think it's very important to just put yourself in the shoes of anybody that you're trying to pitch. Uh, you know, one of the misconceptions that, that you know, Silicon Valley has is that venture capitalists are risk takers. Right? They like to take risk. Not really. They, they accept risk, right? And it's part of their job is to accept risk, but, but they say no still to 99% of the ideas that they hear. You know, I spent, I spent time inside Kleiner Perkins, which is, you know, one of Silicon Valley's oldest venture capital firms. And one of the, one of the things that I heard sort of in the, in the hallways in the first day is if you say no to 99% of the ideas you hear, or sorry, if you say no to 100% of the ideas you hear, you will be right 99% of the time, Right. That was that was the, that was that was sort of uh, that was something I heard in one of my first days, and, and I thought that was so interesting because it's, it seemed so different than what I would expect from a venture capital firm. That I, I would have almost expected them to be wanting and hunting for risk, but that's just generally not the way that people are as human beings, even the people we associate with risk. So again, what what we want to do is we want to put ourselves in their shoes and know that if they're not looking for risk, then we have to point out again why something is the risk of inaction is greater than the risk of action and also why it's why it's new and exciting why it's going to change the world and i think in the book backable you talk about a wide range of companies some of which have become unicorns who employed a strategy similar and then managed to um, you know make it work for them right yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, you look at you look at a company like Rent the Runway, for example, right? And Rent the Runway, uh, you know, leases out uh, high fashion outfits um, where you can we can rent them instead of buying them. Um, now, it's an interesting it's an interesting idea. It would have been interesting ten years ago, but one of the questions that I think investors are always asking is like, why now? Like, what what's why is why is this a relevant idea today? And the answer to that question is that you know, when the founder Jennifer Hyman, when she went to go visit her sister. One of the things she realized is that her sister was buying a very expensive dress for a wedding or for an event. And she was like, one she could not afford at she all. Could not afford, right? right. One she could not afford. And she was, and so you know, Jennifer asked her sister, well, why, why are you, why are you buying this dress right now? I mean, it's not really within your budget. And what her sister said was, look, I, you know, I already wore the other dresses, you know, and I, I need a new dress. And Jennifer said, but the people who are at this event were not the same people who are at all the events for all the outfits that you have in this thing. Surely you're going to be able to find something. And her sister replied with something that really sparked something for Jennifer, which is, well, they may not have been at the event, but they saw it on Instagram. They saw it on social, right? So I need an outfit that they haven't seen on social. And that became the insight for Jennifer that, look, now it's not like I don't want to wear the same dress in front of the same people. I don't want to wear the dress, same dress almost ever again. 
right? Anything that I'm going to post on social, I want to wear something different every time. And people are not going to be able to afford that. So when she went in and started really talking about Rent the Runway, again, she was talking about it as an anthropologist, right? right. Here is the way the world is headed. Here is, here is the direction that things are going in. Social is making it so that people are going to have yeah, going to have to have a wardrobe that they cannot afford. And the only way that they're going to be able to afford that is if we end up creating a rental model for these outfits. And that's the answer to the why now. And that ended up, it ended up became, becoming a very backable pitch. Yeah, very backable pitch indeed. And the book has many other examples, which uh, the readers should definitely check out. Um, you know, Sunil, this has been fascinating, this book, uh, this conversation with you. Before we let you go, just some thoughts about what does a day in your life look like today? How do you spend your energy doing all these different things that you do? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I spend a lot of time writing these days. And in, in some ways, it's a another book coming up. I have another book coming up. I, you know, I'll be I'll be publishing it in in about a year and a half. So I, I, tend to, I tend to work for a couple of years on a book before it's ready. And so I started writing this one in February of this year, and it'll probably come out February, 2023, around that time. And um, you know, I spend my mornings really writing. And in some ways it goes back to the very first question that you asked me, which is, you know, what were things like in the Gupta household growing up? And one of the things that I learned is taking the time where you feel like you are most productive and matching it to the activity where you need that sort of that need, you need that deep work mentality. For me, it's the mornings. I get up every morning and, and I write. I, I remember when I was in law school, Salman Rushdie, who is one of my favorite authors, was passing through town. And, uh, and I, uh, I had a chance to meet him and I asked him the question, like, how, what's, your, what's your creative process like? like? How do you get inspired to write? And I remember he looked at me and he said, I don't get inspired to write. I just write every single day. I just write. And most of what I write is not usable. Like it doesn't go into the books. It goes into the trash bin. But buried in that pile every day is a little pearl. And what I do is I string together those little pearls. And eventually those little pearls become sentences and eventually become paragraphs, chapters, and books. And he's written many, many bestsellers. And I try to keep that in mind, which is that in any given day, the vast majority of what I create, whether, it's, whether that be through the stuff that I teach even, whether the stuff that I write, is not necessarily going to be all that good. But buried in that pile is going to be a little pearl. And hopefully that pearl is helpful to the books I'm writing. It's, it's, it's helpful to the students that I'm teaching. Hopefully it's help, useful to, to people who are listening right now. I'm sure it is. Um, editing in the book, how did you... How did you edit it? The book is so precise. Seven mental model, it's not, not too long, not too short. But I would imagine the shorter the book, the harder it is to edit. How did you go about it? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that if you're, if you're writing a book that is about 50, 50 to 60,000 words, you need to write about 500 to 600,000 words. You need to put 500 to 600,000 words down on paper, and then you just meticulously edit it down. And, and you know, it's one of the things that I learned now. And as, a, as, a, as someone who's writing again, I feel like it was probably the most important lesson that I learned, which is that you have to throw away lots and lots of work. And, you know, the editing process is just, is, it's, it's ruthless. You know, one of the ways I think about it is that you, know, you want to write for the lovers, you want to write as if, you know, you want to write freely and allow yourself to wander and just kind of assume when you're writing that everything you're saying is good so that you're not editing along the way. 
but then you want to look at it separately as an editor. You don't want to write and edit at the same time, but you want to look at what you're doing. And you also, in some ways, want to put on your hater hat, right? You want to, you want to sort of turn in from the lover to the hater, and you want to say, well, why is that important? Like, why does that matter? And you really want to pressure test everything and make sure that every sentence that you have in the book counts. That was always important, I think, for books, but I think it's particularly important now, right? I mean, reading a book takes a lot of time. There are a lot of different ways in which you can get information, right? And so if you're, you're asking somebody to spend a block of time with a book, as opposed to listening to podcasts, as opposed to doing anything else, it's got to, every single page has to be something that provides a tremendous amount of value. Yeah. And even for people, right? Um, you've done a great job of mentioning people who were not in the book, but could have been. But uh, even like editing out some stories, it's, one has to be, uh, take difficult calls. Did you go about it a certain way? Did you have a theme in mind before you began? Or how did you decide on the people aspect of it? The people that actually made it into the book? And the people who could not. Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the things, one of the criteria, I think, for any good story is, you know, what was the, why is it counterintuitive, right? Why, why did the story land in a way that you may not have expected? Or what happened along the way that really was a twist that, that, was, that was surprising to you. And, you know, whenever there's a story that begins and as a reader, you can pretty much tell how the story is going to unfold and end, that's probably not a story that you want to include. You know, it may, be, it may be worth a mention, but you don't want to take a reader's time walking through a story unfolding in a way that they would expect it to unfold. Yeah. It's when there's a surprise. It's when there's a, counter, a counterintuitive, counterintuitiveness to it that not only does it, does it stick, not only is it that surprise that makes a story stick, but that's when it sticks, it becomes actually valuable. Uh, otherwise the lesson is sort of lost. And so I try to apply that ruthlessly across my stories because I have some good ones. I had some good ones that I needed to ask, but again, there wasn't that surprise element. Got it. Any parting advice for people, um, you know, many 400 million people lost their jobs last year. They're yeah. reinventing, recreating themselves. It's a hard time for a lot of people. Yeah. Anything that they can do to become a little more backable in addition yeah. to reading the book? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think in some ways, this is, a, this is a welcome reset, I think, for a lot of people. You know, one of the things that I, what I, what I, what I've learned is that as the, the pandemic has caused so much pain, right? So much suffering. In some ways, it has also, I think, given us the pause that we've needed to kind of realize that maybe the way that we had been living our lives before isn't necessarily the way we want to live it going forward. And that can be a very welcome sort of reset moment. Um, and what, what I encourage, I think, people to do is to really spend time with themselves. Um, you know, one of the easiest things that can happen is to get caught up in what other people want as opposed to what it is that you really want. And you know, as we kind of come out of this, a lot of people are gonna be sharing ideas about what's next, right? And what I, what I would encourage you to do is to really just spend time with yourself too, which I know sounds extremely strange to say after a period of shelter in place, but make sure you don't miss that last bit of time that you need to really think about how has this, this affected me? What is this that I really want out of life? Right. One of, one of my favorite quotes, and I share it with my daughters every day, and I did during the pandemic, I have, I have two little girls. And before I would log them on for their for school every day, I would ask them two questions. And the first question I would ask is, what is the meaning of life? And they would say, to find your gift. 
And I would ask, well, what is the purpose of life? And they would say, to give it away. It's a quote by Picasso. The meaning of life is to find your gift and the purpose of life is to give it away. So think to yourself, you know, what, what is it that I really want to give away right now? What, what, is it, what is it that every day I want to spend time sharing and serving to other people? Use that as your starting point. So Neil, it was, uh, it was delightful speaking with you. And yes, your book is a must read for every person. Uh, thanks very much for sharing um, your time with us, writing this book and for doing what you do. We look forward to being in touch. Thanks so much, Vikars. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.